I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Gordon Lawson, CEO at Conceal, provider of an intelligence grade zero trust technology that protects global companies of all sizes from malware and ransomware. To learn more about our sponsor, Conceal, visit conceal.io. Also joining us is Teresa Payton, former CIO at the White House and a member of the Conceal Advisory Board. She's also the author of the book, Manipulated, Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and Distort the Truth. Teresa, welcome. Great to have you back with us today. Great to see you, Steve. Great to be with you. And Gordon, thank you for coming back on. It's great to see you again. Likewise, Steve. So, Teresa, let's get this kicked off. I read a report and instantly thought of you. The report was published by Moody's Investor Service, and they examined the cyber threats to federal and local governments around the midterm elections and the corresponding credit risks. Um, you might not think that there are uh, you know, credit risks as it relates to these government elections, but there are. We should be paying careful attention to this, I think, uh, and not just the presidential uh, elections. Is that right? Yeah, I agree with you there. And it's interesting that Moody's picked up on the credit risk piece. But uh, really, every election, whether you're electing you know, somebody who's thinking about your wastewater, your uh, animal management, your city council, your county government, um, all elections are important. And making sure that you have the right representation of you as a taxpayer where you live. So this shouldn't just be a presidential election conversation. It should be in every election conversation. So Gordon, Moody's says that while the potential erosion of faith in government institutions is a credit risk for the federal government, the decentralized nature of elections in the U.S. impedes wide-scale national interference, and local governments are exposed to credit risk through the potential shift of resources from core services to strengthen election security. What's your take on this? Well, I think that uh, state and local governments... They've been beat up enough over the last couple of election cycles, Steve, that they know that investing in the integrity of the uh, election process and the voting process is, is key for them. So while there's going to be, I'm sure, a disparity on the sophistication and security of the systems that are being used, I think this is top of mind for our state and local officials, and especially going into these midterm elections, I think they understand the consequences. With that being said, I think that we have a very strong and resilient government and system and federalist system. And, and I think that people need to have faith that there's, there's probably going to be irregularities and there's probably going to be people speaking up against the results. That doesn't mean that we don't have a strong system to work through that. And that also doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing a ton in the cybersecurity protection for those systems. Teresa, when Moody's contacted Cybercrime Magazine, they told us that more localized interference on even a relatively small scale could have disproportionate consequences by raising broader concerns about the country's election uh, system's integrity. Can you unpack this for us? So a couple of things. Um, for anybody listening, um, your vote does matter. So please register to vote and please vote. <laughs> Um, so your vote does matter. Secondly, really understand the geography in which you live in. And if you have concerns around how votes are to be uh, presented, whether it's early voting, absentee voting, on election day voting, if you have concerns, you need to go to your state's Board of Election website and really familiarize yourself with the processes and procedures 
of your state and where you live locally. Find out how they want you to report irregularities that you may hear about or actually witness for yourself. The last thing that I would say on sort of what, what Moody's had to say there, Steve, is that make sure that when you do hear about issues, and if it's where you live or not where you live, make sure that you're not part of sort of the gossip rumor mill, you know, sort of the, the telephone game where sort of the initial idea or issue gets passed on from person to person and then it becomes something that, it you know, the original person saying it doesn't even recognize, really go to trusted vetted sources. So there is um, DHS through the CISA division actually has a group that focuses on election security and supporting the states in holding up their end of the bargain for the constitution. So states are responsible for voting and responsible for providing that service to the citizens that live in their state. But they do have a central way where you can get resources, report irregularities, uh, and a place for the states to actually ask for help and ask for assistance. Go there. That's an authoritative source. You can also go to the FBI. But really, the first place to start is your state board of elections and knowing your duty as a citizen of your state, as a citizen of the town that you live in, what you need to do to make sure your vote is counted the way you intend it to be counted. So, Teresa, I want to uh, follow up here. M Moody's uh, published, you know, their methodology, and I want to read this to you straight out of their report and, you know, get your feedback. They say that at a state and local level, variation in the availability of resources and voting technologies resulting in different levels of exposure to cybersecurity risks and they outline four areas. The first is centralization of election management. Then there's uniformity of voting equipment across the state. There is the type of voting equipment used and the age of the voting equipment. So they're really drilling down, you know, by municipality and, you know, uh, issuing ratings. Do you think that methodology makes sense? I could see why they would adopt that methodology um, but I, I'd like to offer a different um, point of view. So I have uh, utmost respect for Moody's investors and how they think about credit ratings. I came from the financial services industry, um, and I find that their research is incredibly solid. However, what I would say is somebody who has been responsible for delivering very complex technology projects for every demographic around the world, I will tell you that the best approach is meeting people where they are in that moment. So there will be some cities and counties where based on the demographics, based on the funding they have available to them, that certain types of voting is not going to make a lot of sense. So for them, it may be the punch card ballot voting that everybody knows, loves, doesn't get confused and knows how to use. And maybe that's best for them. But in another part of that state, there may be a very tech savvy demographic who they want to adopt new technology, and maybe that technology is being tested and piloted in that area. I think we have to let the states, based on the budgets that they have, make the right decisions based on the demographics and the citizens they have to serve. Uh, and even with sort of the older technology, um, just because it's old technology doesn't mean it's inherently going to be insecure on a level of scale that could, that could throw an election. I'll give you one quick example, Steve. I'm not going to name the state, but there's a state that has uh, older uh, technology. So there's a certain card that goes into the voting machine 
What they do in the warehouse is they have a team of people and everybody has a role to play. So it's like maker, checker, and like auditor and certifier. And they go into the warehouse where the machines are kept. And each machine is set up in a way that when it gets its ballot, it has a unique identifier. That ballot is then inserted into the machine and then the machine is physically locked. So when we think about multi-factor authentication from a cybersecurity perspective or a physical security perspective, you now have a team. The team's all got these maker checker rules. They then go in. Each uh, machine knows specifically, I'm assigned to this and only this cartridge. Then there's a physical lock put on it, and then the machines are locked up. Let's just say on election day, someone does manage to walk in with wire cutters and goes up to the machine and puts in a deep fake forgery prototype into the machine, the machine will actually throw an error because it'll say, this is not the cartridge that was assigned to me. I'm gonna wait for reprogramming instructions before I'll accept a new card. So then somebody would have to walk up. So all of this would be happening in broad daylight in front of everybody. So my point in bringing this up is, is that many of the state's board of elections officials and these teams have thought long and hard around how do we secure the vote. So even if it doesn't come across as the most technically elegant um, solution, you know, sometimes there is security through obscurity. So not everybody being on the same thing um, sometimes can be helpful because it'd be hard to pull off an attack at scale. But then also meeting the locals where they are, making sure they understand it, making sure the volunteers understand it, and having these multi-layers of fail-safes that are put into place are part of the operating processes and procedures. So th those are all things that I, I think that maybe it's not as obvious uh, when you're doing an evaluation like Moody's is doing um, that are occurring at sort of the state and local levels. You know, Gordon, it's funny. Listening to Teresa reminded me of something. We've only canceled one series in all of our programming in years on Cybercrime Magazine, and that was the topic of security ratings, simply because none of the CISOs or C-suite executives wanted to talk to us about it. You know, bad topic. We just don't want to get into that. And I can imagine the municipalities feeling the same way uh, because, you know, it puts them on the defensive and they have to explain or respond to those ratings. So it's a it's a very controversial topic, but I am glad that we can uh, talk about it today. Well, well, especially, Steve, we're, we're in a time of some economic headwinds as well. Right. You know, inflation, rising interest rates. So those municipalities with their debt loads and everything else, they get severely affected by that. So. Uh, it is it is a it's, it's a tough time for them, but I think the other piece on this that we need to keep in mind is, remember we have foreign adversaries, who in my in my opinion, don't care who wins our elections. They just want the American public to believe that the elections were not legitimate, and so we have a we have a common enemy in this fight, and I think that um, we can. This is a place where we can come together as a nation, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Um, do the things that Teresa said uh, in order to get, get out there, uh, cast a vote. That's super important. And, and I think we just need to have faith that, yes, there's going to be discrepancies that arise. I guarantee there's going to be in this election and in, in the foreseeable, elect, uh, foreseeable future. But I think that if we continue to increase our cyber hygiene as a country, we're going to work through that. And the legal system will also work to remedy these issues as well. And we saw that play out. I think in 2020, the legal system worked through all of those discrepancies, 
even when there were judges that were on certain sides of the aisle. Um, and uh, it was, uh, I think it showed the, uh, how, the, the strength of the American system. Gordon, you and I have talked to each other uh, quite a bit about the cybersecurity talent crunch, and there's something that really jumped out at me uh, in this Moody's report, and I want to read it to you. Municipalities that are located in states with a more centralized approach are able to better mitigate risks because of their access to a greater breadth of IT expertise and financial resources. So, you know, my takeaway here is if you're in an area of our country where you have access to more and better cybersecurity talent, then you get a better rating or, you know, your ability to respond to those threats is greater. Well, I, I think this is absolutely a resource issue across the spectrum here. Certain certain states have uh, maybe universities that have more cybersecurity programs, better, better funding, so they're going to have a deeper talent. But I think this is actually a challenge for us as America that we've talked about, right? We have venture capital funds that frankly fund a lot of startups overseas, we need to be funding and investing in youth and startups in America, and I think that there's uh, this is this is a, a very dynamic fight that we that you talk about a lot on your program. Um, we we need people that understand the intricacies of cyber, that not only when it comes to election security, but across our critical infrastructure. And we saw massive healthcare attacks the last couple of weeks, the largest breach probably in the number of records breached in the history of of any healthcare institution. We're seeing this over and over again, and we need a more comprehensive investment across the nation to make sure that those staffing shortfalls are filled. So, Teresa, Moody says that states that have not implemented or mandated uniformity in voting may face challenges in the case of a cyber event, given the difficulty in coordinating responses. What type of cyber event should we be most worried about? And are you seeing you know, a lack of uniformity in you know, certain states? There definitely is that, uh, you know, at the municipality level, you could have in the same state, people are using different ways uh, to tabulate the votes uh, in person. Uh, typically, the absentee ballot process tends to be the same across municipalities, not always, but pretty much, but it's the in-person voting where the booths may be different, you know, based on funding, also based on population and demographics of that population. So... What I would say is when I think about my concerns for a cyber event, um, you know, I wrote a book on disinformation, misinformation campaigns. That is a sinister and clear and present danger that is ongoing, not just on election day, but every day of the year on all social issues. Um, chances are, if you're not speaking to somebody in your family or friend group right now, chances are somebody in that relationship was manipulated by disinformation and misinformation peddlers, and that's why you're not on the best terms with them right now. From a cyber perspective, the one thing that does give me concern and pause, I mean, obviously, anybody who creates election security software and equipment, they have a duty of care to make sure that they're part in the supply chain and the ecosystem of voting, that they are secure, that they are holding up their end of the bargain by doing third-party assessments, top to bottom, engineers, ethical hacking, scenario planning, disaster, um, you know, digital disaster playbook planning. And if they're not, then they should be held accountable for that. And that's a role that sort of DHS CISA can play in holding all of the different vendors accountable, even though it's the states that have to make the decisions. 
The other thing I would say that does give me concern is as it relates to doing support. So there's a combination of things. If the equipment is not working on election day and then the lines start backing up and people decide not to vote, but that's their only shot at voting because it's not early voting, it's the only day of voting. That is a concern. And so sometimes you'll see people will put in remote access protocols to help with, you know, because you don't have a person sitting there that's like, hey, I'm Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It today for, you know, you're waiting for tech support to arrive if you don't have remote access. We all know remote access is definitely sort of a weak link um, in this equation here. So that is a concern of mine is how is remote access support being done? Who's minding that? Who's making sure that that, that, that there's not unauthorized access? Secondly, at the end of the day, when it is time to send the votes, making sure that that process is secure and that it's done on secure communication lines. So those are two areas of potential concern. And that is an area where I know the DHS CISA has done outreach over the past several years with the states. The states opt in to asking for help and getting advice from the federal government. But I, I know that they've given them a lot of things to think about, a lot of things to ask the vendors for to ensure that those two components of where things could possibly go wrong are taken care of. A lot of the other potential cyber incident and security issues, there are mitigating controls using physical security and using multiple people in a process that have to do a certification and accreditation of, yes, I saw the card go in. Yes, I see that inventory. So again, there is, is there the potential for things to be hacked? Of course there is. There always is. No matter what technology, even when a, uh, somebody tells me something's air-gapped, I'm like, I'm sure it's not. At some point in time, it is not air-gapped. Like when you go to update it, it is probably not air-gapped at that point. So when somebody says, you know, something's completely unhackable, that is not accurate in this time, in this place, in the world. But I do believe there are multiple layers of physical security and mitigating controls that should assist Board of Election and state officials to ensure that the way the vote was cast and the way it was intended to be cast is the way that it is counted. Gordon, listening to Teresa, I, I just have to step away from the Moody's report for a minute and, you know, ask you a question, you know, running through my head. Do you think that most uh, municipalities, state and local governments uh, who, you know, are, are getting ready for these elections have an incident response plan in place? Have they thought about this? Have they thought about, wow, you know, we really need to be prepared to respond to a cyber threat. What exactly are we going to do and, and have a playbook and be aligned with, you know, vendors, partners so that they can respond? I, I think the answer is it depends, Steve. I, I'm sure that the larger municipalities have that. And I'm sure some more rural ones probably just don't even have the resources for it. But I, I think across the spectrum, there are incredible resources. As Teresa said, if you look at the CISA election website, they give you down to recommended softwares. And I think some of them are free softwares from Microsoft and Cloudflare, for example, that will help these, these organizations. So the resources are out there. I'm sure that not everyone has exactly the, the plan in place. But I go back to, I think that as we go into these situations, it's also important to have maybe, I think, a sense of history and also to understand 
what Teresa was saying about deep fakes and the influence of social media. I think part of the is- issues that we're seeing with social media, and I'm not one for for banning any of these, the, these for, for anything or anyone on that realm, but I think we need to understand what it's doing to people. And I think without a sense of history, without kind of, you know, we don't really do civics education as much in the United States anymore, but when you see these the, these postings and the emotional reaction, and this is all you know, proven psychologically, the emotional reaction that it invokes in people, no matter what side of the spectrum, political spectrum you're on, it can be really, really detrimental. And Teresa said something about don't let the word of mouth uh, spread, don't let the rumors spread. That, that is really what's detrimental to our democracy. And I think we still continue to have to have faith in these institutions, know that our democracy is going to be messy. It has been messy for over 200 years. It's going to continue to be messy a little bit. But I think that the system is strong enough to work itself out. And this is the difference between us and other nations in the world, one of whom just basically put without any elections, put someone in power for life, right? That's the difference between us and them. And we just have to be continue to get stronger, get better, and work through these challenges as they arise. So, Teresa, let me read to you my, my personal greatest concern uh, after going through that report. And your book, you know, will speak to a lot of this, but, you know, I don't know that everyone has time to read the book. They should. It's a great book, manipulated. Um, but we're, get, we're going to ask you to answer. Although VVPAT, and, and that's a voter verified paper audit trail, provides a backstop against undermining the election result, cyber criminals aiming to sow discord and undermine institutional credibility may take aim at the devices used to count votes after an election concludes. Cyber attacks directed at such tabulating machines could aim to expose results before they are intended to be released, change the results or tabulation, or prevent the functionality of tabulation entirely. What do you think? So th- this, um, again, Steve, I appreciate you bringing this up and Moody's bringing sort of a highlight to this. So for the the tabulation portion, so that whole idea of, you know, kind of the votes are recorded and now it starts to tabulate to actually report results, winners, losers, tight races, runoffs that need to happen. And so that part of the process where the tabulation happens, I do have a concern that if the right processes, people watching, technology and mitigating controls are not in place, then when the manipulation campaigns happen, you need to be able to stand by the results. And so if it, so, one, one of the things, again, we don't want to tip our hands to the cyber criminals and tell them, well, this is how we're going to do everything so we don't get hacked, because again, that could be hackable. But I think being able to clearly and succinctly say, we have a process, we have a playbook, we have exercised somebody trying to hack us and what we would do. We know how we're going to do our certification accreditation and you know, make sure that process is secure. For anybody who has responsibility for that, there are grants that can be applied for to help you if you need to hire an outside firm to help you get these processes in place. But what the, each of the board of elections, um, each of the state board of elections knows is they need to be able to stand by their process for certifying the tabulation of the votes. So is it possible, Steve, Yes, it is possible that we could experience some type of uh, unauthorized access. Is it possible it could lead to tabulation errors? Well, just like technology can fail us, 
it can lead to tabulation errors, which is why you see there's two different counts that are happening, right? So there's the, the tabulation and then there's the paper trail. So you can go back and make sure that both tally up. It's, it's, it's almost like closing, you know, the teller window at the bank. It's like you've got the transactions going on throughout the day and you've got an interim balance. But at the end of the day, you don't just say, well, that's it. That's the balance. There's a whole counting procedure of everything that was taken in over the day. And sometimes there's a discrepancy and the discrepancy gets audited through a process. And then you figure out what happened. That is the same thing with elections. And there's always going to be irregularities because it's humans who are voting. Thank goodness. And not machines voting for us, right? <laughs> humans are voting and humans make mistakes and processes do break down. But those irregularities have a process to be vetted to be validated and then say, so here's where we go from there. So I'm so, I'm so glad that Moody's put a highlight on that and that you brought that up, Steve. It is a concerning part of the process. A lot of work has gone in to protect that part of the process. And each state should be prepared, should they be accused of some kind of problem in tabulation, to be able to stand up and say, this is how we do it and this is how we're reconciling it. So, Gordon, one of the reasons I, I brought that up uh, with Teresa is because uh, it hits home here for us. Uh, we're reporting from uh, Suffolk County in New York. Uh, we're one of the 20 largest municipalities in the country. Uh, our uh, county suffered a major ransomware attack. I don't know if the two of you have followed that at all. It's still unfolding. It occurred about a month ago. Uh, our county had to call in the NYPD for assistance, uh, the FBI, and you know, residents are being affected by this. Uh, everything from title searches, uh, people can't close on homes, and wondering, wow, you know, should I go online? How could this potentially affect uh, you know the outcome of the election? And I'm not talking about the municipalities. I'm talking about the manipulators and the people that uh, Teresa is pointing to. Uh, you know, how real are those worries, those concerns? And do you think people would even stay away from voting if you know they thought that you know online was how they were going to do it? Well, I, I think that there is uh, there's certainly precedence for for online voting, Steve, right? I think, you know, some of the Baltic countries, like Estonia, for example, they have, you know, they're much smaller. I think there's 3 million citizens, much smaller. Everyone has a national ID card. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's, 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 it would be, it's a much easier problem set than what we have in the United States. So I just don't think it, first of all, it's, it's probably, it's probably not constitutional. And, and secondly, it would, it would be very difficult to implement in the United States to do something like that. But I, I get that people would be concerned, especially with the ransomware threat and how we've seen it. It's not only Suffolk County. We saw it hit the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District. There, there's this, these are over and over again, the ransomware threat is there. I think that the majority of these voting systems um, can be operated effectively. There are dedicated teams that are doing that. It should not um, affect people's confidence to get out, to get out and vote. But it does need to be something that is certainly top of mind. And I think that no matter how big or small your budget is, local leaders need to continue to invest because they are going to continue to be targeted, whether that's on the election front. But I think probably more likely you know, elections only happen every couple of years. They're going to be targeted with those critical services that they provide to their constituents. And they need to continue to invest and not just uh, kind of you know, close their eyes to the problem. 
Well, a lot of great insights today. Teresa, before we let you go, tell us about the book because it's just so relevant to the uh, upcoming elections. I think that every uh, you know official would benefit from reading it and citizens as well. Yeah, thank you, Steve. So Manipulated Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and Distort the Truth was um, kind of an ongoing research project. And when I first pitched it to my book agent and I said, I've got this idea for a book that I want to do. And she said, well, what's the fix for this? And I said, there is none. And she said, nobody wants to read <laughs> a scary nonfiction book where there's no fix. She's <laughs> like, you got to you got to come up with something better. And so uh, we crafted the book in such a way where I do talk about what is being done to fix things, what needs to be done internationally to fix it. Uh, and I also start off each chapter with a fictional vignette. So they were somewhat my predictions. And she said again, she's like, I don't think people can handle your predictions. So why don't you make them fictional stories? And uh, uh, so each chapter really just unpacks and unmasks, first of all, sort of human nature. So it's not the fault of social media that there are propaganda campaigns. There have been propaganda campaigns since there were two people walking the earth. And it's well documented. So I walk sort of through the history of propaganda campaigns. And then I go through sort of the early internet um, kind of propaganda campaigns and then into the more modern day misinformation, disinformation peddlers and really unmask who's doing it, how to spot it, how to stop it, uh, how to help your friends and family. And then more importantly for anybody who's in like big tech, social media or in a policy making position, some ideas and alternatives to kind of what we're dealing with today. So Gordon, in addition to Teresa being a former White House CIO, an expert uh, that so many people in our industry know, an author, she's also uh, now an advisor to Conceal, right? She is. Very, very honored. It's awesome. Yeah, well, you have an incredible uh, advisory board. It's on your website, and anyone who's uh, interested in Conceal should uh, absolutely start there. Uh, a great team, some of uh, whom we've had on with us uh, previously. So thank you, Gordon, for joining us, and Teresa. Thank you, Steve. Wonderful to be with you. Yeah, great conversation. I learned a lot from, uh, from the questions and the Moody's report and also from uh, Gordon's insights here today. I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. This interview was sponsored by Conceal, provider of an intelligence-grade zero-trust technology that protects companies of all sizes from malware and ransomware. To learn more, visit conceal.io. You can keep up with all of our media at cybercrimemagazine.com.